caffeine though i'm well not today i didn't but yeah so i've been so okay this is this is a whole thing yeah so last week i started seeing a new therapist and part of the intake information was like you know you do all these surveys right right and So one of the surveys was like, do you feel like you're addicted to like alcohol, drugs, like prescription medicine, caffeine, yeah, right. et cetera? And I selected no for all of them. But then I, I was thinking about it and I was like, Laura, I wonder if it's true that you're not addicted to caffeine. Because I, you know, I'm almost exclusively a tea drinker. Uh-huh. I, you know, have for many years when I'm working, drink several cups of tea a day. But since quarantine has started, I have been drinking every morning a pot of of tea from it's a it's a it's a brown Betty, which is a, like a 350 year old teapot design from England. And it wow. like holds basically four cups. Right. She's off on tea, folks. And this I know. It's going to be like a I two know. hour episode now. <laughs> So you're drinking tea. Yeah. Well, I have, you're, yeah. You're so cu- anyway, yeah. I've been, whereas like previously I would have maybe two cups of black tea and then I would transition to green and then white and then caffeine yeah. free. I've just been yeah. doing like four cups of black. So I said to myself, self, I don't know. Let's see. So yesterday um, I instead had several cups of caffeine free tea in the morning rather than like you know, English breakfast or chai or whatever. And um, it was okay until I got kind of sleepy at like two o'clock. And I was like, okay, like maybe just power through it. Um, And then last night I started to get this like horrible headache. And so I drank a bunch of water, went to bed early, woke up this morning, still had it, Uh proceeded to then drink four cups of tea. And now my headache is gone. And... (laughs) (laughs) So what have we learned? What have we learned? We learned that I am dependent on caffeine. Well, you know what? So am I. Um, I drink really an embarrassing amount of coffee each day. But I'm like sleepy right now to do this, which sucks because usually, like, I feel like we've all sort of gotten used to our new quarantine routines by now, or at least I mostly have. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess I won't speak for everyone, but... The one thing that really still sucks, like I don't feel the one activity more than any other activity that still feels terrible during quarantine is getting ready to record and recording this show because I just miss, I miss driving to St. Paul. I say, you know what? People are going to, people are going to call me a hypocrite or whatever. I miss going to that classic Minneapolis suburb, St. Paul, Minneapolis. (laughs) Um, I miss driving there. I miss getting my coffee and my Kit Kat. I miss sitting. It's all gone now. I am currently sitting in my bed to record this. My goodness. I mean, it's the last quiet space in the house. Um, so, yeah, no, it's it's good. We're going to make it through, though, today. Um, and on that note, probably it would be good to say welcome to this episode of Print Run. 
My name is Eric Kane. Um, caffeinated as always, and with you today is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello. I am also caffeinated. Huzzah. Um, uh, we're going to talk about the same thing everyone else is talking about, which is that stupid letter. Uh, we're going to talk about the letter. You know the one we mean. If you don't, we'll catch you up very soon. Um, we've got a couple other things, too. But before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Yeah. So what month is it? July? It's July. I don't know. We're actually caught up. We are caught nice. up. We are caught up on our special episodes um, yeah. this month, uh, towards the end of the month, because Eric is going to be in the mountains next week. So we won't be recording special episodes. But the week after, we will have our query show, our first pages show, and a flex episode for you. Um, so if you don't know about it, our query and our first pages shows are critique episodes. So people send us in their queries and the first page of their manuscript. We go through them paragraph by paragraph and critique them um, based on how an agent would read. And we try to break that down for you. And then we are we also have a third episode that we kind of keep open based on what your needs are as yeah. writers. And so we've done episodes about contracts. We've done kind of just an aggregate like Tulune at Make Concern or Ask Print Run episode. Um, we haven't quite, or I should say, I haven't quite decided <laughs> what this next episode will be. So if you have a burning suggestion, send it to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Next... Um, at the end of this month, which I'm super, super excited about, Eric and I are teaching a online course. It's four yes. weeks, um, two hours every Tuesday, starting, I think, on the 28th of July. Mm -hmm. And it's through the Loft Literary Center, which is a literary center in in the Twin Cities, but this is digital, so like anybody can take the class. Um, and basically, we're doing a class that's about publishing rules. And so the the goal of this course is to not only explain the logic behind why there are so many rules about querying and formatting and etiquette and platform building and all of this nonsense, but also um, to empower you to like understand the structures that that make these rules like common wisdom. And so you can decide whether or not you want to break or follow said rules. Um, so I'm really excited about it there. The loft has some really good like scholarship or like sliding scale payment options. If mm -hmm. you can't afford to take the class itself. Um, we still, as far as I know, have a few spots open. So sign up. Um, and hopefully if it goes well, we'll offer it in a bunch of other places and a bunch of other ways. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'm excited about it just because, well, one, I think it's going to be a really nice extension of this show. Like, if you're someone who has enjoyed our stuff before, um, if you're a fan of, I guess, really any of it, in particular our special episodes, this is probably a really great, um, it's a good extension of that. Um, it's a good extension of some of the publishing-related, like, the logic issues that we talk about mm -hmm. on this show a lot. I think, the, like, if you like that kind of stuff, this will be a really great course because I think, like, publishing is so full of just so much often repeated conventional wisdom, you know? And I feel like we sort of thought of this course because it kind of presented a chance to deconstruct a lot of it, talk about basically, like, why we do any of the things that we do and what that context can do to affect your decisions as you try to 
make your way in whatever capacity in the book world. And so, um, I don't know. I also am really excited for it. I think it's going to be fun. Um, I really, you know, a silver lining to everything now being online is that you don't have to be in Minneapolis to take it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be cool. So sign up if you haven't. I'm already preparing my dad jokes. It's going to be very fun. (laughs) Yeah. No, it'll be good. I, I, it'll be a good time. I promise. Yeah. Um, so do join. Uh, yeah. So we're doing that. Um, and I think that is enough announcements. Yes. Uh, so, so let's, let's get into the good stuff. Let's get into it. So before we talk about the letter, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about something that I, um, that's been kind of low, Low-key news for a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. which I find incredibly hilarious, Mm -hmm. which is – so if if you know me, you know that I really love twists on Sherlock Holmes stories and I love, like, detective and murder mysteries. been watching a lot of Murder, She Wrote in quarantine. Mm -hmm. I watched all of the Marple show. Like – I'm into it, right? Right. Um, so I was really excited to learn about the movie Enola Holmes, which is like, I think it's about the little sister of mm-hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle, mm-hmm. um, or of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan yeah. Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. There we go. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is really funny. Um, the movie is being accused of violating Arthur Conan Doyle's copyright on Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes because the movie is giving him emotions and having him (laughs) respect women. (laughs) Respecting women, folks. It's protected (laughs) by copyright and don't you dare do it. Um, So... (laughs) Break so break this down for me though. Yeah. What, like what? Why is this happening? Why is this specific issue? <laughs> like how how do we reach a point where someone is suing because Sherlock Holmes is respecting women too much? Yeah. So uh, it, <laughs> it just makes me chuckle because yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. So um so most of the Sherlock Holmes books are in the public domain. There's right. ten stories that are still protected by copyright. Um, And those are from Conan Doyle's later years, okay? Mm -hmm. And the thing about those later stories is that it was kind of when Holmes retired and he started taking this very aloof, kind of emotionless character and made him warmer and, like, having more friendship rather than just um, the weird like the weird relationship he had with Watson. Um, And so because those traits as related to Sherlock Holmes are only in the copyrighted stories, it's seen as infringement (laughs) (laughs) to, to have him like have feelings. Yep. Um, And so you can't have it. And so, but, but I, I just want to talk about like, so, so so the long-term or kind of posthumous author um, estates, like that's really complicated because you have people protecting the rights to stories and, and like guessing what a writer would have wanted or kind of protecting, you know, if it's it's many generations later in the family, you have them have them just like, protecting their brand and their and their ways to make money but like to me it seems really silly frankly to in the year 2020 
create a lawsuit of a property that is going to direct attention back towards this character whose legacy yeah. you are protecting right. by making him more woke. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it just, it seems like it's, it's not going to have the effect that we're hoping here yeah. at this point. Like if, if, if you want Sherlock Holmes to stay relevant, he can't stay the same way that he is. You know what I mean? Well, and also it sounds, you know, what's, what's kind of weird about it is like Holmes was this way. Like the reason they're infringing, like the reason they're alleging copyright infringement is that they are seeing similarities with some of who Sherlock Holmes was, you know? And so it's like they're in some of these later stories that they still have protection on. And so they are, they're like preventing the character from developing on screen in the way that he, he did on the page, you know? And it's, yeah. it's, it's very strange. And it, it ends up like with so many different copyright things, it ends up in this like, strange permutation where like the issue at stake is that the character now has empathy for others. And that means that it, you know, it has to be made illegal and it's, I don't know. Like, I agree with you. I think that, um, just because you can, doesn't mean that you should. Yeah. Like if you're like the (laughs) protector of an old estate like this, I would like something like this theoretically could help you, you know, like it could, you know, it's a chance to breathe new life into some of your, Stuff. I mean, I I think that um, I don't know. It seems like this is kind of an unnecessary fight. And when you frame it in the way that we're able to frame it, and that this article in The Verge is able to frame it, where like they're suing because the character respects women too much, like I think maybe everyone <laughs> should like drink a glass of water and settle down. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. And know. and what's and it just seems like this is this is one of those things where it's you just see somebody like holding on to a fistful of sand tighter and tighter and tighter and then just having it run out from like from their fist yeah because so if you think about the things that have revitalized the the sherlock holmes right like you have you have the bbc modern sherlock series which spawned off Tons and tons and tons and tons of like fan fiction and Watson Holmes kind of erotica. And one of the things that this complaint is specifically stating is that it's infringing copyright to claim that Sherlock would care if Watson is injured or kidnapped. And <laughs> it's it's like completely ignoring that that a lot of modern fandom only cares about that side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it just, it, it seems, it, it just seems so silly to me and there's not much to say about it other than like, sometimes you just have to be like willing to let things change to stay relevant and also like to repeat again once you have a character i mean this is this is a very special case especially because the books are you know very very old but when you have (laughs) when you have a property like this that people are expanding and making bigger and sort of taking ownership in a very active way that just means it's gonna live longer yeah like that's you know that's why i don't understand why writers are totally against fan fiction i mean legally the writers can't read the fan fiction right but the fact that it exists 
is incredible. So much of this stuff generates based interest in the world you created, you know, like it's, um, I don't know, it seems wrongheaded to me as well. Um, I guess we'll see what happens, but yeah, just let, let Sherlock Holmes grow, man. He's trying to do a, you know, he's trying to have some character development. (laughs) He's trying to respect women. He's trying to, you know, listen and hear and do all that other stuff that everyone's always talking about and. Yeah. And Seb, we're saying he can. Seb, we're saying he needs to be the same old codger he always was. And we should let the man evolve, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Netflix is is uh, is fighting the estate to to make Sherlock Holmes have feelings, <laughs> which is which is important. Uh, uh, well, good. So now um, we we should turn to uh, the unfortunate matter of the day, uh, which is. And I okay, so I say unfortunate because I'm sick of this argument. To be honest, I think it's important we kind of look at it and discuss it a minute today. But there is time and time again, and we have talked about it time and time again on this show. This call from people who are really from anywhere on the very center left into the right on the political spectrum. You know, there's this outcry about. I guess you can frame it any number of ways, right? Like there's cancel culture is one way they put it. There's, you know, sort of an intolerance of views. There's the Twitter mob. There's like, oh, you know, basically it's this framing of, you know, the online discourse as being against free speech, of being against, you know, dangerous ideas, all this stuff, right? Like we saw this was the argument for why the Milo book should get published. This is the argument for why any... You know, giant conservative should be given whatever platform they want because it's important to hear other ideas. Like, we, we've seen these arguments many times before, right? Mm-hmm. And we are seeing it now. So what, and, what happened? Right. Um, this week in Harper's, which is worth noting, and this is a key facet to all this, um, is a very prestigious magazine um, with a big audience and a big platform. Um, has published an open letter basically decrying these things, and it was signed by um, all sorts of big name um, and well-platformed and well-compensated and very job-secure. <laughs> Again, like it's important to understand who is participating in this. Um, writers signed this open letter, and, I mean, you had people from, like, J.K. Rowling signed this letter. You had Malcolm Gladwell signing this letter. You had um, other... Rushdie. So, yeah, Salman Rushdie, you had other internet creatures like uh, Jesse Single, you know, signing this letter. You know, like, these people who, I mean, I, I guess I would call them the usual suspects, you know, like, in terms of just the people in media who are constantly decrying this stuff. And so, basically, here's what the letter says in a nutshell. Um, basically, it's saying that the state of modern debate is totally hostile to any sort of contradicting view. And if you express a dissenting opinion, you are hung, drawn, and quartered, and there's no room for anything other than perfect ideological conformity. And so this is this is the quote um, that, you know, I'll read just a section of it that distills uh, what it, you know, the core of what they're saying. So here we go. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture, 
an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for, blind, for public shaming, an ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders, in a spirit of panicked damage control, are delivering hasty and disproportional punishments instead of considered reforms. And then they list some things that they are seeing as happening here. So I want to read these because I think it's important too. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study. And the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. And so basically what we have here on its face, and if you are taking this, this is, I think, the key. If you are taking this totally context-free, if you haven't paid attention to who these people are, to what they're talking about, to any of the kind of stuff, you would look at this and you would say, okay, there's not that much to object to here, right? Like, they're basically saying we should have a healthy space to say whatever you want without being shouted down, or you should be able to say, you, you should be, you know, respectful debate should exist, we should be able to have a diverse set of opinions available, all this kind of stuff, um, which no one is really disagreeing with um, as a concept, but that's not actually what's happening here, right? Like, and I think it's worth noting that in the list of things they're perceiving as happening, they don't actually name any specifics. And, you know, they don't, they won't tell you which editors are fired for running controversial pieces. They don't, they haven't listed here which books are being withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. They aren't, they aren't willing to say which journalists are barred from writing on which topics, any of that. They have no specifics. And I think there's a really detailed reason for that. And it's because, and this is something actually I thought that um, N.K. Jemison put really well the other day online when she was talking about it. And it's that if you ask these people for specifics, you would realize that what they are actually saying is they want to debate, they want to debate people's humanity. They want to debate people's rights. They want to do all these things. Like the stuff they are calling for debate on are often matters of liberty that should already be settled, that are mostly calling into question and bringing to light the same sort of views they're saying are, you know, being espoused by the opposite side. So I don't know. I mean, what do you, I mean, I've got more to say on this, but what do you think of all this? Yeah, well, I think it's important to mention that um, when you say they're calling to be able to debate um, people's humanity, it's right. it's not actually debate. Debate is the wrong word because right. what I think the argument here is I want to be able to say whatever I want in whatever big platform that I have access to and won't have any repercussions for people disagreeing with my takes. So, And that's what's so fascinating about it, right, is because they're actually – what they're actually taking issue with is the exact thing they're claiming to want. Right. All of these people, especially, especially J.K. Rowling. Imagine being J.K. Rowling, having as much money and influence and everything that she has now and saying that she's being censored or saying that she's somehow – the victim of not having enough right to, to speak her mind. Like Malcolm Gladwell, any of these people who you know, like I'm listing names that you know because they're world famous, because they've been paid millions and millions of dollars to express their exact opinion, now saying 
that, oh, they don't feel safe expressing counter, you know, views that are run counter to whatever um, ideology they're saying is pervasive. And, like, it's, to me, I think it's exactly what you just said. Like, what's happened here is for a century, really, right? Like, prestige magazines like Harper's, like the New York Times, like Financial Times, like, you know, all these magazines and newspapers and book publishers and all these stuff, they used to be able to publish whatever they wanted, no matter how toxic, no matter how reactionary, no matter who it put in harm's way uh, by bringing whatever terrible view into mainstream thought and then being able to use that as justification for whatever horror society wanted to inflict on whatever group. They used to be able to do that without hearing from anyone. Mm-hmm. Right? Or they would, but they would get letters and then they would just throw right. them in you the trash. You could just shut that up. But what's happened now is when, for instance, J.K. Rowling gets on the internet and starts promoting transphobic views, you know, and sort of doing the classic frame, just asking questions about, um, you know, trans issues, about things like that. Um, people tell her she's wrong. People get in her replies and say, hey, this is hurtful. This is, um, you know, what you're saying is contributing to violence against a vulnerable group. She perceives that, and these people, for whatever issue these people have, you often, I think it should be noted, often this stuff revolves around trans issues because lots of these people are, like, there's a lot of people on this list who are specifically transphobic. Uh, but it's, like, they perceive the response to their espoused ideas as being the censorship they're, they are, uh, they're so mad about. And, like, what I just want to say is, like, they're not actually looking for debate. They're not actually looking for open society. And the, and the reason we know that is because, they one, they're expressing views that, contrary to what they're saying here, are not actually out of the mainstream. You know what I mean? Like, most of the stuff they're saying, like, you don't have to be some sort of dark web, you know, revolutionary to say you don't like trans people. <laughs> like, that's just an opinion that a lot of people have. You know what I mean? Like, it, and our society has been built around people saying that and treating those people poorly for a very long time. Like, you're not some sort of hidden insurgent for expressing some of these bigoted views. You know, they've been often policy in America for a long time. Like, the idea that you're censored for expressing some of these, like, regressive things, like, no, that has been... <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe saying it's like the mainstream view is wrong because public opinion isn't the same as what our policies are. Mm-hmm. But like we ha- we live in a world that is ruled by the exact opinions these people are expressing. Like the power is with them. And so what they're trying to do is the same thing that, you know, reactionaries always try to do is like claiming that any opposition to their ideas in an open way. And again, we're talking about responses, right? We're not – no one is saying – J.K. Rowling should be jailed. No one is saying we should take these people's livelihoods away. We're disagreeing with them publicly in the exact way they're claiming to want, and they're instead claiming that as oppression. So I think I think the power is really, really important. Yeah. And I think the the main discourse, at least in the circles that you and I follow, about this specific letter, um, and there was a really good refutation 
um, that we'll link to on our social media that was published today by a lot of journalists and academics, yeah. where it's basically looking at how can cancel culture absolutely is a thing, but for marginalized people. Right. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. So <laughs> uh, yeah. say more on that for a second. So, um, so it, it's more of just that when when somebody is afraid of being canceled, they're afraid of having their power and their access and their money taken away. Right. And we've seen time and time again when somebody who is cisgender, heterosexual, um, white, Christian, able-bodied, etc., yeah. um, when they, you know... Um, are the best-selling children's book author of the entire history of the world, <laughs> and they yeah. have more Twitter followers than their country right. um, has 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 people living in it. Um, they like like people turning on them ideologically is not actually taking away their power. But then again, you have I saw an example that was really fascinating to me with like Eartha Kit said one like bad thing that people didn't like um at a white house luncheon and she had to leave the hemisphere for a decade and couldn't yeah. get work you know what i mean like yeah. you have you have the um people being blackballed from their work you have people yes. being fired what's really hilarious to me is a lot of people who signed this letter um have very demonstratedly gone and tried to get journalists or other writers or thinkers fired because These they people love have disagreed. canceling people love canceling love people no, like you have like barry weiss is on this list she's a you know if you don't know her good for you it means you've been avoiding <laughs> the internet but like you know she's a new york times opinion writer she's in her life she's tried to get professors fired for being pro-palestinian and things like that like these people who claim to want debate love using institutional power to silence people right. and if they actually cared about what what they are calling quote unquote cancel culture they would care about things like people being fired for being gay or trans they would you know care about you know people you know who is like routinely forced out of media jobs for you know whatever circumstances like i think it's not a coincidence for instance that harpers the magazine that publishes is a place that doesn't pay their interns. And like, what do we know about publishing when it chooses to do things like that? It means only a certain sort of voice gets to be the one expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's, there's just this inversion that happens here where the people with all the power and all the platform and all this, all the opportunities, now that they're getting pushback for their, for their ideas, now that they're not able to just like, uncritically say whatever they want without people in the world via social media or whatever saying, hey, we think that's bad. Mm -hmm. They view that as censorship. You know, and what we've said that before, like if you're if you're someone who is used to power and privilege, any amount of leveling that, and to be clear, these responses are not leveling that. Like all of the people we've described are still very much in power. And if we quote unquote cancel them tomorrow, they will still have all the same power, not like there's, we're not actually taking anything from any of these people. Like, they view that, though, as oppression, right? Like, if, if you're used to privilege, you see, you very often can see equality as oppression. And it's, it's just very, it's very strange. And I think that it's just, like, again, I want to get back to, like, this idea that, like, um, 
so like just looking at their examples, right? Like they list here, you know, editors are fired for running controversial pieces. It's like, oh, that sounds really bad. What are your examples for that? And it's like, well, they don't have one. And the re- what they're hinting at, I think, is James Bennett getting fired from or the New York Times. resigning from the New York oh, yeah, Times. He, excuse me. Yeah, he, resi- he resigned. But they probably had a hand in discussing that with him. You know, he resigned from the New York Times because they published an op-ed that he admitted to not even having read from a U.S. senator saying that the military should should basically take up arms against the citizens. And a bunch of New York Times journalists said, hey, this puts me in danger, you know, like, and it's, it's like, okay, well, when you actually add the example that they're referring to here, it seems like maybe that was the right course of action, you know, or like the books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. You know, they're probably talking about American dirt, which we have talked time and time again about all the reasons why it was good that that book got pushed back. You know what I mean? Like, there are, but that book still got pushback, and it still made the yes. the New York Times list, and was still Oprah's yes. book club book. It still made a ton of money. Oprah didn't drop it. Like all of these, you know, all of these examples or all of these phenomenon that they're talking about are like, you know, they don't. They're not, you know, their examples don't hold up, and in fact, they prove evidence. I think to the following, because like again. If you were staring at this without any context, a lot of their demands do sound good. They do sound like, of course, I don't think anyone in a vacuum would say, oh, editors should be fired for running controversial pieces. Of course not. That doesn't make sense as a principle. Um, Or like, you know, people should be barred from writing certain things or books should be sold. But like what I would just say to these people is like, you know, or like here, journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Like all of these things I think actually are true but they're exactly the opposite of what they're saying. Like, try writing, like, go try writing, like, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel stuff for a major newspaper. See how far that gets you. <laughs> go start trying to write pro, you know, like, stuff about trans rights. Like, are, are you're not seeing these pieces because they aren't, they don't fit the editorial models these places have. There actually is a severe imbalance of opinion, but it's the exact opposite they're describing. Like, the idea that, and this is why, like, this is, if there's one thing I want anyone listening to this to take away from people who make these calls, is they're talking about debate. The last thing a single one of these people who signed this letter actually want is open debate. And you know that because none of them will ever, ever, ever engage with a perspective to their left. They have no interest in actually discussing trans rights in a good, in a good faith way. They have no interest in talking about any of the systems of oppression that they're claiming are, uh, one, they claim they're non-existent, but two, they say the people who advocate for dismantling those systems are somehow the dominant ideology. You know, like, it's it's just this inversion. They're not, so they're not actually looking for an open conversation because an open conversation would mean our editorial boards would look a lot different than they do. It would mean that what gets published would look a lot different than it does. Like, how often have we talked, Laura, and not just us, but anyone examining publishing about how, you know, I guess you could almost frame it in the same way they're framing the problem. I think that you and I would probably agree that there are some dominant ideologies in book publishing and that certain <laughs> ideas don't get to get said, right? Like, but it's not the ones they say. Like, yeah. it's it's actually the exact opposite. And it's not coming, like, there was just this perfect distillation yesterday someone do you remember that story we did 
well, I don't, I don't even remember when it must have been like a year ago where that woman, that author, she, um, she got that, uh, she tried to get that train engineer fired uh, for eating on the job. Do you remember this? Yes. I don't remember what the woman's name is. Yes. But she was on the MTA. Natasha Tynes, Tynes, right? Yes, it was. Yep. And she got quote unquote canceled for that because she did this thing. And I remember even saying at the time, like, you know, like, yeah, it was good that this person probably shouldn't have, you know, that kind of book deal. But, you know, it, it did feel like, you know, some of the response, you know, was a little over the top. People were taking pot shots. And I still kind of believe that. But yesterday she gets on there, she gets on Twitter and she's like, I have a piece coming out in an international edition of L. I think it was L. It was either L or L. L- I think it was L-U-K. L-U-K. She was like, that outlines my experience with cancel culture. And I just look at that and I think, isn't there, like, if you were canceled, how is it you're getting these giant mainstream <laughs> media opportunities? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, every person who talks about how they've been canceled, how they've been, like, whatever it is, like, the phenomenon as they describe it simply isn't real. Like, it, I do think people get canceled all the time, but you don't hear from them again because they never had power in the first place because these institutions work very hard to keep them from having influence or a voice. Like... I guess that that's like my point distilled. It's like the problems they're describing do in a sense exist, but they exist not for them. Like these none of the people who are arguing this are in any danger of being canceled in the way they're describing. It does happen to people who are already marginalized, who have no power, who have no labor power. I mean a huge part of this is like that, you know, if you are like if you're a worker at one of these media places and you speak up, you're gone, you know? And it's <laughs> so I, I want know. I want to talk about I want to talk about um, a related thing building yeah. off of what you yeah. mentioned yeah. about um, how all of this is a, a sort of like rhetorical straw man in an attempt to like reassert power. Yeah. Specifically for people like in the arts and people who are seen as great thinkers. Yes. Um, so one of the things that really fascinates me and it fascinates I think you could argue like general media is mm-hmm. the concept of failure. Um, yes. And specifically, like, failure when it comes to, like, being a big artist or a big thinker. Um, somebody who has gotten really big. Um, and I always think about the rhetoric surrounding that. It's like when somebody has has reached incredible heights and they fail, it's never like it's never about audience reception like failure mm-hmm. it's always like well um it's only like you didn't live up to your past work right yeah. um and that's really like the reason for lack of attention and success it's it's um and if it is like if there is this idea that you have not personally failed but you're still not being successful then it ends up being framed in such a way that's that's less about what the audience like thinks or believes and it and it like treats an audience like sheep like i i keep thinking yes. about um like when dylan went electric right like that totally shifted consumer behavior because then all of a sudden everybody wanted electric guitars 
And so the people that were still using acoustics had a lot of trouble and had to either, you know, fail or they had to transition according Mm -hmm. to um, according to the behavior of, you know, another great artist. And it was just the the idea is, is just that, like, as consumers, we're 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 sheep. Right. Right. Um, There's this idea I I believe that that is really enforced by a letter like this, which is like once you get into prestige thinking circles, you are never wrong. Yes. Or like the audience will never disagree with you if they can be led. Like if and if you can't control your audience, that's a failure on your part, not because your audience are like actual people having discourse with you. Um, It should be pointed out that these people think that their audience is absolutely dumb as rocks. Yeah. Like it's it's yeah. it's like if you fail, it's because it's not because like we're also thinkers and you failed in your thinking. It's because like we're sheep and something over there is shinier. Um and the concept of like an audience engaging critically with creators is just like I think and this is based on the historical context of like platform and power and like who gets to share their ideas but it's like totally anathema to to this type of person to to the letter signatories like canceling is never a result of an honest reaction because the audience isn't capable of that because they don't have the power they don't have the platform it's not like norman mailer and i i'm totally forgetting right now but who was in the feud with norman mailer where they would just like send super terrible letters to one another i have no idea Um, but it sounds great it doesn't matter. But like that used to be a thing where just like two dudes decided <laughs> yeah. that they hated each other and that they were both in positions of power and they would just like be scathing forever and ever and ever. And there's this idea that like that is the acceptable like and neither of them are failing. Neither of them are bad for doing that. It's only when you have many people who you don't know the name of that you can't write a letter to. Who you can easily categorize as a mob. Who you can easily like, categorize as key, a mob. Is the imagery of like this unruly group of people who mm-hmm. aren't listening, who aren't engaging thoughtfully. They're just coming to burn your house down with their yeah. pitchforks and torches. Yeah, because ultimately, like you can't fail up, and if if like if your audience is poking holes in your work, like you can, you will only. Like the only acceptable failure, the only like real reason for failing is is because you as a as a as a creator have failed. It's completely right. erasing any sort of reaction. It's kind of related to the to the Sherlock Holmes thing. It's like, dudes. <laughs> right. Like the the failure is is that your audience is probably not going to respond super well to this. Like that, that is not even something that would probably cross the mind of the signatories here. Um, You can't recover if you're seen through. And that is so scary realizing that the people who are consuming your genius thoughts, um, that, that they have thoughts and opinions and are, that are valid by themselves Mm -hmm. and like that (laughs) you know people always talk about well it's you know if a if a book is going to be canceled you know coming back to books because that's the area that we do 
But like, well, if if a book is really bad or a book has bad rep like representation or whatever, then just like put it out and if it just doesn't do well in the market then then there you go like that's the thing the market these people love the market they love the market but they hate the the consumers yeah and and the thing is is like they're the same thing the market is the consumers but it's also like one of the things that's never thought about is the institutional support that makes something a success that makes a product a success yes like it's problematic that we have publishers putting millions of dollars into a book that is really harmful and that they're pushing it to people that won't know necessarily right away that there's problems with it. And then, like, if you put millions and millions and millions of dollars into a book launch, the book's going to sell a lot yes. of books because yeah. that's how it works. Like. Right. There, people, people in publishing always love to pretend that they don't know how to do their jobs, and they're always surprised when something yes. sells well. But yes. the truth is, is that they do know how to do it. Yeah, and so like granting that to something that they know, like it's not just a pure mechanism. Well, if the book is good, it w- or it'll sell, and if it isn't, it won't sell. That's just never. That's a childish view it's of a, how book publishing works. It's, it's a childish view of how book publishing works, and it also gets at this this idea of like canceling and failure that. Like a lot of these signatories believe that they're existing as thinkers and thought leaders and artists outside of a larger community and outside Mm -hmm. like there that there is no social contract for what they're responsible for. You know what I mean? Like they're not they're not like I'm not sure that J.K. Rowling has ever thought since the success of Harry Potter, how does my writing fit in with the larger landscape of publishing they do what not does believe in my consequences stake for in themselves. that they think that Change they should it. yeah yeah well it's not i mean even consequences because that has you know in some ways like a, a negative connotation which it should in this case but there's it, it really is the idea that it's 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 just these people can exist on their own mm-hmm. and they shouldn't be responsible for, you know, the new debut author down the line or shouldn't mm-hmm. be responsible for an, an individual individual or nameless audience. Um, it's just their thoughts and you're receiving it. And if you don't receive it, you're bad. Yeah. And they should continue to be paid handsomely to espouse the thoughts yes. without having to receive yes. any feedback. Because they're big, important yeah. thinkers, Eric. Yeah. Well, and like, so just going to to book cancellations for a second, because again, as you say, like, that's kind of where our focus is. Just like quickly, not that, I mean, obviously we could spend episode after episode Mm -hmm. on this topic, but like thinking about, I feel like lots of this stuff ends up happening in like YA. Yes. And which, like, there's always this talk about which YA book is getting canceled, but at least to my eye and to my recollection, the books in young adult literature that actually get pulled the ones that are actually sort of yanked and the author actually made to apologize and not given the institutional support in the big campaigns are the ones written by younger people of color or other marginalized backgrounds. Like, it's never, like, again, like, these book cancellations do exist, but not for the people these guys think it does. You know, like, it's always for, it's just, it's always very interesting, I think, who the larger media landscape will say, will, like, deliver public outcry for being canceled and who it won't. You know what I mean? Because, like, 
people routinely lose opportunities because someone doesn't like their opinions. All the time it happens. But it's the exact inverse of what they're saying is happening. And, like, if... I don't know. It just makes me... It makes me crazy to once again see, like... Like, what they're basically saying is, like, we should be paid handsomely and securely for our ideas, and anyone who doesn't like them is a censorship mob. And I just think that's wild. I think that's... I think that is a not... I I don't have... You know, again, like, again, remembering that these people are not actually looking for a debate. I refuse to debate it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I am not going to, like, the other, the other, like, utility for them, like, in saying, well, we just want to have a debate, is that they know that, like, so, here, let me try to lay this out for you. Like, if there's a debate, that the, if these people got the debate they want, it would be them versus some person, they couldn't have some sort of discussion, but... What that doesn't really take into account is who has the asymmetry of power and access, right? Like, when J.K. Rowling debates the lives of and the humanity of trans people on her Twitter feed, her opinions, her toxic beliefs, the articles she's sharing that are full of fake science and all this kind of stuff, are broadcast to millions and millions and millions of people. The people disagreeing with her do not have that same access, do not have that same... like. It's not a debate on even footing. You know what I mean? Like, it's, like, which is what, so when they say, well, we want open debate, they want to just be able to espouse things without pushback, without actually seeing any of the structures that help them, you know, do what they do affected at all, you know? And it's, you know, we've said this about other things in in publishing when it comes to, especially, I, I can remember us talking about it with, like, conservative book imprints and stuff, like, we are not in a debate. We're not in a debate about any of this stuff because everyone already knows the facts about so many of these different issues. We're in a power struggle. And the thing that power loves to do is say, oh, just debate us. Just let us talk. Because they know that when it comes to go head-to-head, they're the ones with the resources and the influence. And so like, you don't have to debate these people every time they express something wild like you can just say it sucks like you're not an illiberal person for reading something that is unconsidered trash and saying so like that makes you a critical reader who responded appropriately to trash i don't know like maybe that's weird to say but like it's not everything is debate club in fact nothing is and these people know that that's a good point to end on let's move on (laughs) Let's move on to our to sure. Limit May concern. Sure. I'm going to read it to you, Eric. Please do. Dear Loon, I have a gig proofreading for a kind, computer-challenged older man who writes spiritual self-help guides. He has previously been taken advantage of by a vanity publisher who put him through the ringer with his first book, and I've been trying to help him seek publication the traditional route. He asked me to help him find an agent last year. We researched agencies and got a proposal together, but there was no interest. He recently asked me to send his manuscript to a copyright attorney who had said that he's hired uh, to find an agent for him. That sounds suspicious to me. Can an attorney do anything to help you find an agent that you couldn't do yourself with some elbow grease and a couple of writer's digest guides? Unless the guy has some personal connections in New York, I'm worried my client is walking into another trap due to his desperation to get published. That's the end of it. This is an interesting question. 
and it's a good one, I think, to address in a broad way, um, because I, and I'm interested to hear what you think, Laura, I agree with this person's instinct that there's something, I guess I don't know if I would call it suspicious, but I do think, I do think something useless and even perhaps unwittingly exploitative is happening here, which is that ostensibly this kind, you know, person who's just trying to get their book published has hired someone, probably for pay, to help them find an agent. You know, they've hired a lawyer to help them find an agent. And I I guess I really, really want to discourage our listeners from doing that. Um, not that there's anything, like, there's nothing on your end as a writer that is, like, unethical about doing that. But they can't do any, as they point out, they can't do anything you can't do. You know, like... They're not offering access. They're not offering anything that is going to supersede your own ability to find and query people. Like, it's like, so yeah, no, I think that this, I think this person should not hire this attorney personally. I think that that it's not going to get them any closer to what they want, especially knowing that they've already been taken advantage by other, of by other predatory publishing structures. Like, I, if you feel comfortable doing so, and it seems like you do, it seems like you've got a relationship with this person, like, I would tell them that maybe this is not such a good idea. Um, And I think the reason for that is, or I guess, like, the broader phenomenon here is people trying to make this process into something that it isn't, you know? Yeah, so 99.99999% of the time... Nothing, including contacts or money, neither contacts nor money, will get you closer to traditional publishing than just hard work and time. In a lot yeah. of the time, in a lot of ways, money or like over reliance on personal contacts will will trip you up, and just like let that wash over you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so you even, yeah. when. Yeah. So like when people, I mean, and even honestly, like it even extends to, well, you have the opportunity to 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 pitch an agent who's going to be in your city. And it's like mm-hmm. an agent who's in your city and talking to you in person might because they don't like conflict or whatever. They might not say no right away, but like the, it will have zero to do with whether or not they want to work with you and sign with you. Um also querying is free uh that's that's a different subject but but like truly the biggest benefit that a person or that money can buy you is is like knowledge right so like the best it's feedback it's never access it's always feedback so like if you can um and if it seems like something that you need to do not everybody needs to do it but like paying you know, 25 bucks for a query critique. That's a good use of money. Hiring somebody to find you an agent is not, that's providing access. That's predatory. Don't pay for access. What do we know, kids? We don't pay pay for access. We do not pay for access. Um, And especially because, like, you know, it sounds like from this letter that it's not even verified that this person even has the personal connections. It sounds like this person has promised a certain amount of skill or something in finding an agent. And what I would just say there is like, 
He doesn't like whoever this lawyer is. They don't have it. I'm confident that they don't have it because there's <laughs> nothing that they're gonna. No matter how good they are, whatever it is, there's nothing they can do that you can't do yourself. And are you ready for my really mean hot take? I can't wait. If they were a good lawyer or they knew anything about copyright, they'd be busy doing that instead of like taking money for you to get an agent. Because yeah, there's funny it's, ones. Yeah. it's it's the truth. Like it truth. It's a like, bottom really. barrel gig, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like. Lawyers can charge like hundreds of dollars yeah. an hour. Agents, yeah. you know, like don't make yeah. money. And yeah, it's it's yeah. it's not a good idea. It's in fact incredibly bad. Um yeah. and so I I think like the the big takeaway here, I think it's pretty clear what we what we think about this particular situation. But the reason that we wanted to talk about it is is just to just to discuss a little bit more. The fact that, like, there are a lot of cottage industries, especially given the 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 lowering stigma against self-publishing. There's and and just the fact that, like, it's hard to make a dent with so many books out right now. Um, there's a lot of cottage industries that are yeah. that are built around yeah. just providing a service and and taking money for it and a lot of the times like the surf the the service itself is not going to be something that is really going to like help an individual get closer to their goals so that's really like the difference between like a self-publishing outfit and a vanity publisher is that like a vanity press will be like yeah for 6.99 we're gonna edit your book and it's like but they don't say anything about editing and really it just means that they like copy edit it and they're not looking towards market. They're not doing anything. Or they, if they say, you know, I can get your book on a bestseller list or get X number of reviews mm -hmm. for this amount of money. Like none of that, like all of that is just so that they can say that they did it and yep. to take your money. Yep. Like the people you want to ally yourself with, whether it's an agent, whether it's somebody who can assist you in self-publishing, whether it's an editor, I don't care. But the, the people you want to ally yourself with are the people who have expertise in a particular part of the market and they look at your project particularly and they're, they're looking to see how your specific project fits in the specific market. And yeah. so like, you know, an editor who's going to say, hey, we've got some plot holes or there's some problems that I think is going to make it hard for readers to like your book. Or, you know, if this is like if you have a book that's, you know, a little bit more towards like gifty books or aimed at older people, they'll say, hey, we want to talk specifically about how you can optimize print rather than ebooks because that'll be harder to hit your audience. Like there's lots of questions related to that that like are, are keys here. So it's so it is access rather than general service. Um, like both of those things I think are, are very bad and you can find them in different areas. Um, yeah. And just like, yeah, like everybody is always trying to give you shortcuts into like getting past the gatekeepers, right. Or like getting to the gatekeepers and getting through to them. And it's like, that's like agents primarily are not gatekeepers. Agents are advocates and yeah. that's like if you if you start thinking about their jobs in that way, 
I think you'll be happier with the types of work that you're doing to find one and advocate, you'll, start, and, like, you'll stop trying to them. game it, you know, like it becomes less of a procedural thing that you can like pay your scheme your way through and more right. something that might be an organic step in positioning yourself best for your career, you know? Yeah. There's, there's nothing that you can do to turn this from something that's a numbers game yeah. to like a hack. There are no yeah, cheat codes. Exactly. There's exactly. no anything. You're always going to get no's. You're always going to get whatever. So just like, Pay for knowledge, pay for critiques, do the work, and then just, like, forget everything else. Because there's always people out here who know that you're desperate, they know that you care about your book, and they're going to try to scam you. Yeah, I think that's a good place to put it. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Print Run. Thank you all so much for joining us, and... Don't stay tuned next week for our next special episode because Eric will be in a fight with either a beaver or an owl. Um, But the next week after that, we will have an episode for you. That's right. (laughs) Bye. I'm going to debate the owl in the marketplace of ideas. It's going to be great. 